Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Before we have our speaker, um, let's just go around and introduce ourselves. Um, I'm Joe Fay. Asa. Peter. Matthew. Rick. Michael. Mitch. Ron, Mike, George, Ray Dyer, Tim Stewart, Mark, Kurt, Casper, Martin, Anthony, Michael, Elise, Winter, Stephen, Larry, Michael, Carly, <coughs> Jerry, David, Norman, David Axel, Bill, Christopher, Bill, Martin, Adrian, Peter, Robert, Jack, Emilio, Clint. <laughs> um, if someone's here for the first time or the second time or returning after a long absence, would you raise your hand? There's a few of you, so um, we'll, we'll, we'll try to make sure those of us who come often to speak to you in the period after. We have a little social time. Um, 12 to 12.30. Our speaker today is Larry Yang. Larry Yang is a longtime meditator trained as a psychotherapist and is very interested in creating access to the Dharma for communities who have felt the experience of exclusion or difference. Larry is a teacher at the East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland. He is in teacher training with Jack Hornfield and has practiced extensively in Southeast Asia, including a six-month residency in Thailand as a Theravadan Buddhist monk. So it's a pleasure to be back in, um, in <laughs> And, you know, I, I actually put this hat on not out of... Um, frivolity or um, uh, sort of um, making fun of. But actually, when I was in Thailand, it was during this period of time, between like October and March. And uh, it surprised me that at this time of year, these hats started showing up on the Buddha statues. And... You know, so I was living in this culture, and um, as I got a sense of it, um, what I noticed is is that you know Christmas was arising, but what I didn't see was um, sort of nativity scenes or actual references to um, Christian. Um, symbols or metaphors 
but I did see snowmen and I saw Santa Claus and and so what I began to realize is that culturally there was this um, taking on of this holiday as a, as a secular experience and that that in this particular culture they were beginning to create a kind of Christmas that was their own um, which was really interesting and, and that, that is actually the topic of this talk is making it our own practice um, because that's actually what's happening when, the, when we're bringing um, a tradition, a lineage that comes from a different culture uh, or many different cultures actually we are actually starting to make it our own, both individually and collectively. And um, how we do that is um, part of our path, right? So um, some of you know the name Ajahn Chah, who is one of the most esteemed monks in the, in the 20th century in Thailand, and he's the teacher of many of our Western teachers. Christmas arose in his monastery as well and um, a lot of both the foreign monastics but also the foreign lay people that were practicing were starting to create these festivities around Christmas and, and then some of the, I guess, more traditionalists um, came to him and, and were really skeptical and, and they asked, why are Buddhists celebrating Christmas? And um, so Ajahn Chah gave a talk on religion and, and how um, that he understood Christianity teaches people to do good and avoid evil just as Buddhism does. So, you know, what's the problem? And then he said, however, if people are upset by the idea of celebrating Christmas, that can be easily remedied. We won't call it Christmas. We'll call it Buddhamus. <laughs> and... Anything that inspires us to see what is true and to do what is good is actually proper practice. So, um, so actually, Christmas arose in his monastery quite frequently, in terms of that. And actually, I think that's what's so special about this particular sangha: is not only um, is it a um, is it a gathering of our queer community to explore practice. But it's also a gathering which is, um, which is the metaphor of the Western experience is, is that all of these lineages, all of these practices, and um, the entire, the entire uh, history of how Buddhism has been lived in the world is coming together at this time. And this is very different than how um, the Dharma has been experienced in, in sort of tradition, traditional Asian cultures because they have been um, geographically isolated frequently. So this is actually a really um, special time when, when we can notice the similarities and the, and the clear differences and sometimes quite painful contradictions that how this path has unfolded. So, um, for example, uh, as many of you know that, that have practiced in maybe several lineages, um, 
the Four Noble Truths are, are a constant. That is, that is one of the fundamental um, pieces of, of what the Buddha taught. Um, the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes, you know, loving kindness, compassion, uh, joy, appreciative joy, and equanimity. Um, there are these, there are these um, threads that weave all of the lineages together regardless of what culture, what, what tradition um, uh, you come from. But, you know, there are huge differences, too. And um, uh, the, um, one of the other LGBT groups that uh, in San Francisco uh, on Monday nights that uh, Ryuman and I started um, uh, years ago, um, we were discussing, she's a Latina priest at the Zen Center in the Mahayana tradition, and so we were discussing when we were trying to um, uh, decide what to offer um, uh, we began to realize the subtlety of how the, the teachings are really offered differently. So that, for example, if you go to um, a retreat at Spirit Rock, whether it's a queer retreat or whether it's a mainstream retreat, the first teaching that you'll get is the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta. It's one of the primary teachings of the Theravadan lineage, and it's around awareness and mindfulness and in going from the body to feeling tone to uh, mental objects, meaning your thoughts and, and your emotions, and then being aware of the dharmas as they arise. And as I was, we were talking about this, Ryuma and I, and, and um, uh, I was just assuming that you know, like this is this was one of the basic pieces of my practice, and and she said, oh. Well, that's interesting. We don't actually get that for 10 years. <laughs> and it's like they start in a different place, and they eventually get to Satipatthana Sutta, and um, there are lots of reasons for that. Um, and it was, it was really palatable how different um, our experiences were in the Dharma, and yet we could language it, our, you know, the, 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 um, the purpose around liberation and freedom was still um, uh, in what we had in common. And it differs even further into direct contradiction. So those of you who have practiced in Vajrayana practice and the Tibetan practices know that Tantra is, is uh, quite key in the development of, um, uh, of awareness and freedom. And this is what Bhante Gunaratana says about Tantra. I'm sorry to say these things, but Theravada Buddhists don't consider Tantra to be Buddhism. Nowhere in the original Buddhist literature can you find Tantric Buddhism. Tantra is a later development. There is no such thing as Tantric Buddhism. And so you have direct contradictions and um, uh, uh, differences that actually begin to separate. And so how do you actually make it your own? How do you navigate through all of it and make it your own practice, regardless of what is being offered to you, regardless of who is sitting in the seat? 
And in terms of you know, the lineages and the, the different perspectives, the different paths up to the same mountaintop, my experience is, is that you actually have to travel at, for some length along the path to find out whether it actually resonates in your particular life. That you can't just decide at the beginning of the path whether this is the path for you or not. So there is a, there is a sense of, of um, whether a certain doors, certain dharma doors are more resonant to you or not. But then part of the practice is actually going through the door and experiencing some of the teachings and deepening. And so um, uh, sort of floating at the top of all the lineages can get um, can get you access to many of the teachings that are in common. But how do you actually create a situation in which you're not just practicing a lineage, but that you're practicing your practice, that, that your practice is something integral in your life that is unique because your life is unique. So I just want to talk about some of these differences as it manifests in, in just in my own experience. And I'm coming from the experience of a, uh, someone who's mainly practiced in Theravada and practiced, even though I've, I've, I've um, sat with different teachers and, and uh, meditation centers. Um, so if you go back to the scriptures, it's really clear that there are differences in the experience of enlightenment itself, in awakening itself. So if you're familiar with uh, Buddha's story of, um, you know, he spent six years as a wandering ascetic and, and then um, um, there was a realization that none of that was working for him and he sat down in, in the diamond seat under the Bodhi tree and, and um, would not get up, made the resolution not to get up until he reached full awakening. Um, and he went through the three um, watches of the night and, um, and Mara sort of uh, threw at him um, all of these um, temptations and distractions from, from becoming awake. Um, and, and in the three watches, he, he was able to trace his past lies back so that he actually began to understand <coughs> cause and effect, the, the, um, uh, the uh, impact of karma. Um, the second watch of the night was around his understanding of dependent origination. And um, the third watch of the night was the unveiling of the Four Noble Truths. This story or this um, experience of awakening is very different than his three primary disciples. So I just want to just go over that really briefly. That um, So his two primary disciples were Moggallana and Saraputra. Moggallana, they were like close friends for many, many lifetimes, and they became his right and left hand, uh, the Buddha's right and left hand. So Saraputra, um, or I'll start with Moggallana. Moggallana, um, got his, his awakening very quickly, within seven days of his ordination um, uh, in the Sangha. And yet his primary experience in practice 
was sloth and torpor. He kept falling asleep over and over and over again. It wasn't as if he had this um, you know, path that the Buddha had around sitting down with this determination. And the classic instructions around sleepiness, which you get in the retreats today around um, reflecting on the teachings to brighten the mind, and if that doesn't work, to open the eyes and let the light actually brighten the mind, or pulling on your earlobes to create energy in, in, um, in the system, and if, uh, if that doesn't work, to actually go on walking meditation to create energy in the body. And if that doesn't work, to um, actually take some rest. But not to enjoy the pleasure of sleep, not to indulge in the pleasure. So all of these classic instructions actually come from Moggallana's, um, uh, the, the instructions that the Buddha gave to Moggallana in his process uh, awakening. So having been connected with Sariputra for many, many lifetimes as brothers, as friends, as, as, um, as uh, uh, it's said that you know, sometimes they were um, a king and prime minister, and sometimes they were the reverse, sometimes they were in the same family, um, Sariputra's experience was really different. It took him longer, it took him twice as long, and it was really easy. Um, it, it said that the Buddha was giving a Dharma talk to Sariputra's nephew. And Sariputra was actually fanning the Buddha. And in that, in that, in that moment of sharing the Dharma with, um, it, it's like sharing, it, the, the image is, is, is sharing the, uh, the food off the same plate. Uh, he became fully awake. And so, there's uh, this uh, very pithy thing that there are four ways to freedom. There's um, fast and easy. There's slow and easy, which is what Sariputra experienced. There's fast and difficult, which is what Moggallana experienced. And there's slow and difficult, which is how we most of us experience <laughs> 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 but just to say that the, the paths of enlightenment are actually very different. And Ananda is, is the last example of this path of slow and difficult. That he, even though he was the primary attendant of the Buddha for uh, 25 years, he only uh, reached that first level of awakening and um, it was only after the Buddha died when he was under pressure to attend the first council because he had memorized all of the Buddha's discourses. Uh, and so for them to have a council without the information of all the discourses would have made the, 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 you know, the council um, uh, meaningless, but only fully enlightened beings could attend that first council. So he was under pressure and he was practicing diligently and up until um, the last watch of the night, he hadn't fully attained. And so he basically gave up because at dawn the council was going to start. And as he was 
falling as he was laying down on the bed to fall asleep, halfway between sitting and lying down, he attained. And he's actually the only person that is recorded to have attained outside of the four postures, uh, sitting, walking, lying down, and um, uh, standing. Um, so that even that aspect that we have in our have in our um, vision around the Dharma of what is the ultimate experience is really different. So Ajahn Fuan, who is one of the um, he's one of the contemporaries of Ajahn Chah, he also passed away in the mid 60s in Thailand. He said, "For insights to arise." You have to use your own strategies. You can't use other people's strategies and expect to get the same results. And so I just want to bring it down to the details of our practice. This happens all the time. So in the loving kindness practice, for example, there are some traditional phrases. Um, May you be happy. May you be safe. May you be protected. May you be at ease. And there is always the option of changing those phrases to, to allow what is going to work with for you. So sometimes the phrases change a lot. Sometimes people just encapsulate the phrase to the word that the phrase is... is um, is inclining the heart towards. So it could just be happy. And just feeling that energy of happiness or ease or safety. But how does the loving-kindness metta practice work for you? You can only actually figure that out when you begin to experiment and you need the dough. You begin to you begin to create the ingredients of the recipe of, which, of what your practice is. So actually, my personal metaphrases are quite long because um, it's, it's, it has taken me a long time for this particular heart to, to relax and open. So I need, in my, in my uh, visualization practice, I need some words to... Um, for the heart to actually stay in contact with. So my phrases go, um, may you be happy, may you be free from pain and suffering, may you live with ease and well-being. And then I go on, I say, uh, may you be healthy in body, mind, and spirit. May you love and be loved. May you love yourself without condition. And may you find freedom. And those are my particular phrases that I have you know, developed over time, but whether those actually work for you or not, I don't know. And I, I don't pretend to be able to answer that question because that's, that's um, what you can find out. Likewise with the instruction, the particular instructions around meditation, and I know that uh, again, I can only speak from the Theravadan lineage, but um, the metaphor is true, I think, for all, pra- all 
traditions. Within the Theravadan lineage, if you go back to the Vasudhimaga, which is this voluminous thousand-page treatise on how to meditate, there are 40 different objects, for God's sake. And um, starting with the body, the breath, even if you just take the breath, there are different places in the body to notice the breath. You can do it at the nose, the back of the throat, the chest, the stomach. And in the beginning, I was just totally like bewildered as to what is it that I was supposed to focus on? Was I supposed to focus, you know, and was one place, and this sort of hung me up for a long time, was one place around the breath better than another? And there were teachers that actually told me, yes, you know, if you meditated at, at, at the tip of the nose, you would become more concentrated. And, um, and really, what, what works for you? Because that's the eventual question that, that arose for me. What is working for me and what is not? Um, the same thing is true for walking. Meditation. I mean, um, the Mahayana tradition around kinhin is very different than the Theravadan tradition around, you know, taking a taking a length and going back and forth. And even within the Theravadan tradition, you get half a dozen different um, instructions around either counting or noting, placing, moving, walking, or noticing the sensations that come up in your body. And again. Sometimes, you know, the, the determination around this or the multiplicity of options is around skillful means. So, what works for you in this moment? But also, exploring what works for your practice. What allows you to deepen the practice as a whole? So, I was teaching this retreat recently and... Um, this may sound frivolous, but uh, so we, I was doing interv individual interviews and this, uh, pra this practitioner came up and admitted that um, what kept him in the meditation hall for 45 minutes, which is longer than he had ever uh, meditated before, was that he um, decided that he was going to use this meditation retreat to whiten his teeth. And he bought these teeth whitening strips, right? And so during the fitting meditation, because the strips take 30 or 40 minutes to, to do, and so he felt totally okay with sitting in the meditation hall, not doing anything for 30 or 40 minutes with this happening. And I said, you go, girl. Whatever it takes. To, to keep you there. What works for you, in the, it's not going to say that you know five years from hence it's still going to work for him. <coughs> but what is going to keep you in that seat or in the practice of awareness right now? And it kind of reminded me of the story that Ajahn Jimnian tells when he um, visits um, every year in June. Um, I don't know, if some of you have sat with him, he's this rotund, he's probably around 65, no, he just turned 70, so he's around 71 right now. 
um, but he's rotund. And, but apparently as a young um, monk, he was very handsome, very a beautiful man. And people would just fall in love with him. And, um, and so people would sit and just be gaga over this, you know, um, beautiful presence up on the, up on the platform. And one of his monks said, do you know what's happening? Do you, they're, they're here because, you know, they're, they're in lust for you. And he said, his response was, um, whatever keeps them there. <laughs> because the Dharma will change all of that. And that's, and, and that was quite beautiful for me, that he was willing to use everything in order to create this process of transformation. So we talk about variations in lineage, variations in, in specific practices. There's also the variation of our life experience of what we bring as soon as we come into sitting on our dharma seat. So I just want to suggest that sanghas like this are just about that, making it your own collective practice, not just for you as individuals, but for communities. And that noticing and naming and living into our experience with identity, whatever that might mean to you, whether it means around identity, around orientation, or around um, ethnicity, or race, or gender, or gender identity, this is actually an important door that we walk through, just noticing whether our experience is the same or, the, or different from the mainstream culture or world. Whether our joys and sorrows are the same or different as the rest of the 10,000 joys or the 10,000 sorrows. And ultimately, it's the question of who am I, right? Who are we? This is what this kind of gathering this kind of community building around Sangha is really underlying the entire experience. Is who are we? And this is the fundamental question of almost all Eastern spiritual traditions. Who are we? And it's not an answer that is cognitive. We actually have to live through that experience in order to create insights. So there was a, where is it? Oh. So again, at a, at a recent retreat, um, at the end of it, I got this email. And it just speaks to this issue of um, how we use our identity as a doorway to healing. And, um, and our practice. He writes, in the company of heterosexuals, I am always to some extent on guard. It doesn't matter how nice they are. I'm old enough to know that when I came of age, being queer was still listed as a mental disorder. 
Boys in my high school in Los Angeles used to boast of going to Hollywood and rolling the queers. With a very few precious exceptions, sex was something desperate and dangerous done with someone you didn't know. Nowhere I looked, nowhere were there any positive messages or role models. All this comes from the unquestioned heterosexual privilege that is, to a great extent, still with us. A person doesn't just get over growing up in that kind of environment. I have dealt with crippled self-esteem and depression most of my life. So, in the retreat last weekend, this was a gay men's retreat, I experienced a momentary thawing of my frozen heart that I am quite sure would not have happened in an all-inclusive retreat. It was so beautiful to me to be in the company of other gay and bisexual men, each having humbly come to practice. This huge lump of unprocessed pain began to move. I have work to do, and I will seek out queer, especially queer Buddhist environments to do it in. So that happened earlier this fall, and I went into my own retreat after uh, in November. And it, it, and it really rang for me even more because, so I'm 52, and uh, I've been out since I was 29, so roughly 25 years. And I've been in practice for at least 15, maybe 18 years. And in this, in this three-week re uh, retreat, which was basically a self-retreat in, in the Forest Refuge, it surprised me how much um, this issue around orientation still arises for me. And so one of the recurring experiences I began to have in, in this self-retreat was a particular sexual fantasy. And so, I mean, sexual fantasies, you get the instructions how to work with it around desire or lust or, or uh, the, um, the ability to look at it as thought. And, you know, in this particular situation, none of those um, instructions fit. And what I began to do is I began tracing it back. So I began... I began actually living the fantasy in, in terms of living it backwards um, through the people that, that I had been in relationship with. Was this fantasy um, uh, uh, in that particular relationship? Was it not? What, what, what about the times in which I wasn't in relationship? And I began to follow it back, almost like um, tracing back past lives. And as I went further back into my adolescence and childhood, I actually got to a memory of when this fantasy got triggered. This interaction between two boys playing on a playground that had no actual sexual you know, charge to it, but there was an imprint because I couldn't express my affection for this boy. And it was totally suppressed, of course. You know, there's no 
even today, there's no venue for that kind of exploration of relationship, of um, of healthy development of communication, which of course heterosexuals have. They 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 meet in the playground. They make mistakes with each other. They learn. They grow. They bond. They they create relationships, intimate relationships. And what I began to realize is that up until the age of 29, when when I was when I actually came out, all of that was underground. This is a huge piece of conditioning. That of course. <coughs> It's going to take a lot of time and a lot of compassion and a lot of willingness to become more and more aware of who I really am. And as the awareness touches those moments in our lives, you have a choice. And I realize now I have a choice. Now that I've seen the unfolding of this particular fantasy. When it arises again, I have a choice. I understand how it arose. And I have a choice of, do I go there again or do I not? Is it actually going to lead me to more happiness, which it might, or will it lead to more suffering? But that's the piece of freedom. When you have a choice. When you don't have a choice, you are only led by your conditioning. This is why it's so important for us to practice together, to develop safe places together. Because we just do not heal ourselves. We begin to heal our whole community. So I want to also talk about another variation, and that is around teachers. Because every teacher has a different style. Every teacher has a different story. And some are hierarchical, depending upon the lineage or tradition, and some more operate around spiritual friendships, which is much more of a sort of a... Um, uh, appear, not appear necessarily, but... Uh, uh, an equality, egalitarian uh, form of relationship. And I just, at least from my own experience, I just want to say that regardless of what, where they come from as teachers, all of them will piss you off. At some point in time, if you stick around long enough, Every single teacher will piss you off. And then where's your practice? Do you have a practice that will guide you through that state of being pissed off? And believe me, I've been there innumerable times. And so, um, what is that? I mean, that's just praise and blame, right? One of the worldly conditions that prevent us from, from uh, that distract us and prevent us from being sort of more focused on, on, on our liberation. 
But that doesn't mean that we can avoid the praise and blame. So, some of you know the um, before he passed away, the incredible work that Steve Peskin did, and uh, he's a was a very close friend of of um, GBF, um, started the Buddhist AIDS Project, and he interviewed uh, His Holiness, and His Holiness said um, when he was asked about um, homosexual behavior, homosexual and lesbian behavior. It's part of what we Buddhists call bad sexual conduct. Sexual organs were created for reproduction between the male and female element, and everything that deviates from that is not acceptable from a Buddhist point of view. Where are you when you hear that? Where's your practice? Given that we know this is a man who is deep into his. And remember that you know the, the reaction of whatever or sort of compartmentalizing that that he just doesn't understand, that is just indifference. And indifference is the near enemy of equanimity. So it's not about just, you know, putting it aside. It's about actually walking through the experience of these contradictions. And how do you do it? This is your practice. This is my practice. When I hear that and the feelings that arise. Even the Buddha could only really point the way. So there's that, you know, there's that, there's that Mahayana image of Pointing to the moon is not the experience of the moon itself. Even the Buddha can only point to the moon. Otherwise, even in his time, there would be more Buddhas, right? There wouldn't just be enlightened beings. There would be fully enlightened beings to the Buddhahood. And that's not what happened. The one last thing that I would suggest about teachers, and this is, again really coming from a personal point of view. I would suggest that the best teachers support, guide, and nurture students to actually attain higher states than they do. To actually surpass them in their understanding and deepening of what is really true. At least that's been my experience, because that is actually so inspirational. Because that's the unconditional desire for freedom for everybody, regardless of time frame, regardless of condition. And that's really a um, uh, an example of the bodhisattva principle. Is is to actually have the practitioners, you know, excel. And so that's one of the things that, that I certainly notice. If I, and it's not something that's tangible, but if you notice it, it's something that I pay attention to. And there's a model for this. Um, some of you know who um, Munindraji is. He's one. Of, he was a um, 
Bengali man who um, went to Burma to practice and was, again, a very um, uh, deep practitioner, but at some point in time he stopped his own practice because he felt that teaching, he could make much more of an impact than his own quote-unquote liberation. So the, the, uh, the story is, is that he attained the first level of awakening, which is Sotapanna, and then he stopped, and he began training all of the other people that he's trained, including Joseph Goldstein and, and Sharon Salzberg and a lot of Westerners. And he trained Deepa Ma, who was a woman who had experienced horrific losses in her life. There's a book about her. Um, and he guided her through the Vasudhimaga, through areas that he did not excel in or even began to practice. And so she attained um, these levels of experiences that we would consider to be paranormal that he had never even approached. So there is a model for this kind of um, inspirational teaching out there. I'm running out of time, and I just I do want to save, you know, just some room for comments. But the last thing that I want to say is, um, making it your own practice doesn't mean rewriting the Dharma. It doesn't mean doing it your own way. It doesn't mean um, doing it on your own. So there is this um, Kalamata Sutta that uh, Kalama Sutta that. Um, mm-hmm often is quoted as, as um, sort of the carte blanche that, that, that gives people the right to, to um, use their own experience as a guide for the Dharma, and, and people sort of go off independently. And so it says, when you yourselves know these things are bad, blamable, censured by the wise, undertaken and observed, these things lead to harm and ill, then abandon them. When you yourselves know these things are good, blameless, praised by the wise, undertaken and observed, these things lead to benefit and happiness, then enter on and abide in them. So it's talking about personal experience, but what often isn't emphasized are these phrases um, by the wise, Censured by the wise, praised by the wise, and undertaken and observed. So it means that you're not doing it on your own. You are doing it in relationship with people who are able to guide you. You are doing it in relationship to your own lived experience, not necessarily your cognitive thoughts. So undertaken means live through experience. And observed, it means how is it? Does it work for the community? It's not just, we are not, this is not a practice or a tradition that is about personal salvation. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this refuge of Sangha. This is about our collective healing and path towards freedom. So there is no one single path, but there is oneness.
and that is both the mystery and the instruction. So I will um, end with, this is a very classic quote from um, a particular translation of the Buddha's last words. Therefore, Ananda, be ye lamps unto yourself, be ye a refuge to yourselves. Betake yourself to no external refuge, hold fast to the truth as a lamp, hold fast to the truth as a refuge. Look not for a refuge in anyone besides yourselves. And those, Ananda, who either now or after I am dead shall be a lamp unto themselves, shall betake themselves to no external refuge, shall not look for refuge to anyone besides themselves. It is they who shall reach the very topmost height, but they must be anxious to learn. So may we all be anxious to learn, and um, may we all find with ease our path leading to our collective sense of freedom. Yeah. One question back to the Dalai Lama, because I, I did exactly what you, what you said was, was uh, in your interview. Uh, I, I just said, well, I, I have a lot of respect for the Dalai Lama and for his teachings. I really think in some ways he's white. He just doesn't get it as far as the gay thing goes. And, and I left it at that. And I still have left it at that. And I'm, I'm curious, what, how, did, how did you go through this kind of contradiction about this apparently enlightened person with what I consider a profoundly unenlightened view about one aspect of Right, right. So it's actually, um, did everybody hear that in terms of the, uh, the quote around His Holiness? Um, it's holding the complexity of how our particular experience is held within this tradition. And a lot of it is, for me, I had to go back and do some research and and so I went, and, and in my period as a monastic, I actually read the entire Vinaya. And um, there is nothing in the monastic code that prohibits um, same-sex behavior or activity. And um, that actually gave me my ground around my sense of... Um, uh, being here, the 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 um, uh, the sense of confidence and you know unquestioned authority in my own experience, and how do I hold uh, really good people who don't see it, who don't experience it for some reason? And there may be many reasons. Some of it may be cultural, some of it may be political in terms of um, to state such a um, uh, uh, to, to, to make a, such a statement might be going against you know the politics around his his lineage um, uh, but how do you hold good people who do bad things or you know things that are experienced with harm and and that's where my practice goes is um, because there are times in which there's a lot of anger and um, disappointment and frustration. 
But the, the practice around awareness is, is that how do you, what is your relationship to those things as they arise? Is it indifference? Is it, is it really the, the subtle avoidance, the aversion of those unpleasant feelings? Or is it really going through them and understanding them and watching them change? Because as all things do. So that was my particular reaction to it to him as well as um, um, other teachings that, that, you know, the teachings around women in, in, the, in, the, in the scriptures. You know, a lot of, a lot of the, um, the story that we get, and this is what I've only picked up when I went to Thailand, um, is that the the uh, the nuns' order started five years after the um, uh, monastic order, and that Ananda was this you know proponent and advocate, and it's a beautiful story, and I love Ananda because of it. And uh, then there was some uh, article that I read that pointed out that Ananda only became the Buddha's attendant. 25 years after Ananda ordained, which makes sense because he had to do, he, when you're a monk, um, you, the first five years you're just tied to your teacher. You don't go anywhere. And so it takes, so Ananda at, at the end of five years of um, uh, where the story starts would not have been in a position to be that close to the Buddha. And this puts the whole story in question for me around the nun's order starting, why the nun's order started, and why the nun's order cannot start again in, in, in contemporary you know, practice, um, which is what a lot of the patriarchy uses, that um, you know, the Buddha set up all these rules around women and, and the, the rules actually lower their status in, in some way. It puts all of that into question for me. Because the historical sequence doesn't make sense, and so how do we hold that? And you know, my personal my personal um, opinion around that is each culture that the Dharma has entered changes the culture, and the Dharma changes. That's the relationship, and this is the piece that I think that our Western culture can, one of the pieces that our Western culture can bring is, is um, a re-examining of the, this patriarchal system in which we do practice. Has there been any update or uh, restatement or clarification of that view by the Dalai Lama? Not that I'm aware of. Um, Although in recent times the Dalai Lama, see the Dalai Lama uh, um, um, doesn't believe that we're any less than. And so there has been numerous um, releases, uh, press releases from him supporting our community around human rights issues and um, particularly difficult struggles around, uh, I can't remember, I just... um, there was one particular um, uh, press release that I read that he was supporting a, um, a queer rights struggle in. 
And so he's very supportive of us being treated as, um, you know, full human beings with all the human rights. It's just that in his particular framework, this behavior doesn't lead to happiness. It leads to suffering. But it does so because of viewpoints like his. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Uh, there are many traditions in Buddhism. And in fact, that's, as I experience it more and more, I, I'm amazed at uh, how divided and subdivided it is. Who, in, from your point of view, does the Dalai Lama speak for? He actually only speaks. Uh, it depends on on who's projecting onto him, you know, who he speaks for. But literally, he speaks for his lineage, of which there are five lineages within the Vajrayana tradition. So he actually only speaks for one of them, and the others get a little irritated when people think that he's talking for Tibetan Tibetan Buddhism. But because he's such a powerful figure and a much beloved figure. Um, a lot of people feel that he is talking for, you know, Buddhism. And a second question. When did he take on, or who assigned him the title His Holiness? Um, I actually don't know. I actually don't know. I mean, that could be sort of our cultural imposition. Around. I think it is a cultural imposition based on our Christian point of view yeah. and how we address the Pope as his holiness or some in Christian tradition do. Uh, and I think that's a big mistake in terms of translating the basic Buddhist thought into Western civilization. That's a good point. I think most of the scriptures uh, until recently were translated in the late 1800s. So it's only recently that there have been retranslations. Yeah. Thanks. It's time for us to close. Do this in a closing. Sure. to feel the energy of your body, the energy of your practice. Appreciating yourselves for the time that you've created for your meditation practice, for being in community. Appreciating each person that's come supporting each other in community. Feeling how that feels in the body, this sense of appreciation and gratitude. Feeling the gratitude in our hearts and from that place of openness 
offering unconditionally without reservation the merit that's been generated from our practice to be offered to the liberation and the happiness of all beings in all worlds in all directions. I blindly skipped over announcements. Oh, please stay and have some tea and cookies. And um, there's a sign-up sheet if you'd like to uh, uh, get the newsletter. Um, and uh, there's a Donna bowl if you'd like to uh, help support the uh, meetings. Thank you for of the Sangha. Any other <coughs> I've got one, Joe. Um, because of the, the mass man last week, we postponed the, the reading of prisoners' letters, and um, our, our prison letter project generates about 95% of the group's mail. Um, so we have a number of letters to read, and what I'd like is for people that are interested to volunteer to help us go through the letters, and we sort them according to the re- basic requests that people have. Um, and in the future, I, I hope to have a set of guidelines for anybody that's interested in becoming a pen pal to a prisoner. We can establish some boundaries so you can have a, like a safe, comfortable relationship if you, you do find it you know, worth your while to, to write to a pen pal. Some of these letters are pretty routine, but some of them are very moving. And so you know, if a group of us is able to go through the mail, we can share some of the more interesting and moving letters, too. Please, if you have time, participate. Is that today? We're doing that today, yeah. Um, I actually have three um, events that I'd like people to know about. One is um, uh, Anushka Fernandopoli and I are going to be doing an LGBT weekend at Saratoga Springs, um, the, um, the 18th through the 21st. So um, January? January. It's a three-day weekend. It's Martin Luther King weekend. So. Um, you're all invited to that. Um, and um, the week after, on Saturday, uh, Arena Weissman will be in town, and so she's uh, doing her first teaching at the East Bay Meditation Center mm-hmm. on Saturday. Um, so it's the first time that she, she'll be just be returning after two and a half years away. So those of you who have sat with her um, know how... Uh, much like a diamond she is. She is crystal clear in her teachings. And then the day after, on Sunday, um, we're going to have a community meeting for queer people of color. So all of you who identify as um, uh, people of color, you are invited. And Asa is one of the people that is hosting it with me and and Angel Kyoto Williams and Lawrence Ellis and among other people um, just to explore... Um, uh, the intersection of, of that particular those particular identities. So you're uh, welcome to come to that too. Thanks, Joe. Oh, I'm sorry. Next week, Jim Wilson is speaking. He's a longtime favorite, and he used to speak uh, every month. And uh, he is, is a, a in the Soto Zen tradition. He's quite a scholar, and um, uh, he has a great. Um, 
insight into uh, what is what we need to hear. So he's all very well. And it's a great way to start the new year. And, and a reminder that our talks are available on the internet at the GBF website, gaybuddhist.org. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.